Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Michael Samuels, founder and director of Art as a Healing Force. Michael Samuels, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. Let's situate ourselves in time and space here. Um, we are both longtime residents of this small coastal community called Bolinas. Uh, we were born a year apart in New York City, you in 1942, me in 1943. Uh, you went to Friends Academy in New York, where you learned about pacifism and spirituality. You went to Quaker meetings, where you learned about speaking aloud with thanks and about prayer. At Brown uh, University, you studied yoga and shamanism with Keith Bole. Is that the way you pronounce it? Yes, Keith Bole. Who was Carlos Castaneda's teacher. Then you went to New York University School of Medicine and then did a residency at Pacific Presbyterian here in San Francisco. And then with the U.S. Public Health Service, you ended up on a Hopi reservation before you came to Bolinas where you co-founded an early holistic health center with Irving Oil. Headlands Clinic. Right. Um, when was the first moment that you knew that immunology research and a traditional research trajectory was not the path that you should take? Uh, it's a good question, Michael. Uh, what I remember was when I was uh, working with cancer patients using guided imagery. And you know very well what this means. Uh, if you wait for the research on guided imagery to come out before you work with cancer patients, um, uh, it's not going to happen. So I, I had all the skills and tools to do research and could have a life in research or I could uh, do on-patient care. And in the when you're doing on-patient care with spirit, uh, to rely on research to justify it didn't seem to make sense to me. So I was sitting on my deck in Bolanus, really, uh, and I had a choice of driving into a research lab or working with patients with spiritual care. So I decided to do this second. When you founded uh, the Headlands Clinic, Headlands Clinic with Irving Oil, yeah. What was your understanding at that point of the nature of healing that goes beyond the uh, current scientific paradigm of health? What, what, how did you understand that healing actually worked when you were founding the clinic? And what was that, 1973 or something? I would guess, 72, 73. Yeah. Uh, Headlands Clinic was born when the oil tankers collided under the Golden Cape Bridge and Belina said the oil spill. And... There were, I was a public health physician from Marin County, and there were thousands and thousands of volunteers cleaning up the birds. And in the marine bio lab in Blanus, many of you were here for this, uh, there was a place of cleaning the oil off the birds. And the volunteers were falling and needed tetanus shots and various things. So I decided to set up a satellite clinic for Marin Public Health and was paid to do that in Blanus. But... Um, there was something about the proximity of oil-covered birds uh, to and, and volunteers who were trying to heal the earth that blew our medicine apart. And people would come in and sit with us, and 
allopathic medicine just didn't make any sense to us. The Irving, Irving Oil had been an internist in New York City for his whole lifetime. He was much older than I was. And I'd been doing basically allopathic medicine. Uh, and it was like a moment when it cracked. And people from the community came in and we had immediately love healing, color healing, auras. We had never done that before. I had had guided imagery training. I was a very well-trained Ericksonian hypnotist. So, and, uh, and I'd worked with Native American. I had a lot of skills behind me. But at this place, things changed. And that was, we let the bird, the place of cleaning birds clinic flow into Headlands. And then in Headlands, we essentially had something that was, Irving had been in Bread and Puppet Theater. So we had a clinic that was theater. We had a room and people came in, for those of you who remember it, and whoever was there for the day was there. Uh, Marty Rossman, me, uh, Rolling Thunder, uh, Helen Palmer, and there were modalities, mixed modalities available. And this was 1972. It was very strange. We had acupuncture, homeopathy, uh, an Graham healing, Rolling Thunder, and people would say a couple of things and somebody would walk with them and that'd be a healing that would take place. And it could be allopathic. It was really, it was magical and very strange and, a and it was medical school all over again for all of us. And our goal was, Irving and I, when we set it up, um, the goal was we didn't want to do anything that didn't feel right to us as a physician. And if you, if you ask yourself what that means as a healer, you're not going to do anything that doesn't feel right to you. So you have to, in a sense, jettison the training open healing up to be a mystery, and then let something emerge. And obviously we had a lot of skills, a lot of people with a lot of skills, but we no longer would do A, B, C, D. So you're the author of 21 books, including the Well Body book, the Well Baby book, the Well Pregnancy book, and a very extraordinary book called Seeing with the Mind's Eye, which was one of the first books on guided imagery and was named that year one of the 10 most influential health books. And in 1991, you started an extraordinary project uh, with Linda Samuels, your sister, and uh, with the active engagement of our friend and colleague, Marianne Weber, uh, called Art as a Healing Force. And that actually led to two major Commonweal conferences on Art as a Healing Force very early in the trajectory of the development of the healing arts. What led you to found, to found Art as a Healing Force? Uh, I, was, I had a practice at that point with guided imagery in cancer patients. But um, Carl Symington had done the first work in America with it. Um, and it was a static kind of work where you did, you, the patient would picture white blood cells eating cancer cells in their mind. And all of us, Gene Achterberg and the people working early in the field, realized right away that that imagery, which was biological imagery, would automatically shift to a metaphorical imagery where a wolf would be chasing a shadow or something like that. The, the images were often um, animal images, but they could be anything. It could be white light, it could be... And the image that was most powerful to the cancer patient in the visualization space, and Frank Lawless, who was Gene Actenberg's husband, he, he would tell stories where he could put his hand on a shoulder of a person, and when they had an image, you can just feel their whole body vibrate, feel the energy. And that was an image that came from them, from their spirit. So that what happened to me is patients would come to me, who I was working with with cancer, 
and they would start bringing me drawings and drawings of animals. And they'd say, I'd say, why are you bringing me a drawing? And they'd say, because in my guide imagery space, when I started to draw, I could see much deeply, much more deeply. And the process of making the art, moving my hand, would bring a vision that I didn't see in guided imagery space. So I realized that art, creativity, and this was like a primitive re realization, was a tool to enhance the visionary space which healing images came from. So that started Art as Healing Force with, with, with my sister. And our mission statement was a very, very broad mission statement because the field didn't exist as we knew it in America. Or now it's an enormous field. And our, our mission statement was that art, which is music, dance, written, which is poetry, theater, um, spoken word, uh, visual arts, uh, film, uh, sculpture, paintings, uh, were healing to yourself from a mental or physical illness or growth state, others, a person in a community, a hospital, a hospital program, a prison, an old age home, the neighborhood, neighborhood art, or the earth ecosystem. So we wanted to find, we did a search to try to find human beings, artists, museum creators, philanthropists, or people whose artistic and creative process was healing to that group. So that was the beginning of Art as Healing Force. And you write on your Art as a Healing Force website that you had a sense, and the others involved in the healing arts field, that art and medicine, art and healing were really becoming one, and that it was going to change art and change healing, and that this really was, that the healing arts really were a spiritual path, a transformational path, in a fundamental sense. It's, to us, the first artist, the first healer were one person, who was the shaman, priest, priestess. And what they did wasn't a form of art that we do, uh, painting, drawing. They did a, uh, what closest to performance art, which is ritual and ceremony, which involved costume, it involved dance, and involved music. And what it was for was to put the people they were healing in a visionary state, and the visions and to connect to the spirit world, and the spirit world would heal. So that, uh, so it was clear to us that uh, the genesis of healing and the genesis of medicine were spiritual and that they were involved with creativity. That was kind of de facto uh, evidence. And, but that's a huge mystery, and that's a huge challenge, and that was the beginning. At the two conferences on Art as a Healing Force that we held here, uh, you and Linda assembled artists from all over the United States, and we used the big uh, uh, a museum space upstairs and had a really extraordinary uh, selection of contributions from artists. But my most vivid memory of one of those conferences was that I think it was one of those conferences, was that there was a participant, and I think you'll remember this, who had an experience which I had never directly seen before. She had an out-of-body experience, and I was walking with her. She was a woman, I think, from Australia. She was a physician, and she told me that she found that her consciousness was up over her right shoulder somewhere, and she couldn't get it back in her body. And I did not know what to do with this. I had heard of out-of-body experiences, but I certainly had not walked around with somebody having an out-of-body experience. So I asked if there was anyone who thought they could help. And you volunteered to help. And you took her up to her room in Pacific House and sat with her. And later she came down and she was integrated again. And you said something to me that I've never forgotten, that there were some kind of 
threads between the out-of-body consciousness and her body, and that somehow you helped her reintegrate. Do you remember this at all or not? Yeah. Yeah, Zuleika. It was Zuleika. It was Zuleika. Aha. Uh -huh. She'd been in an auto accident before she got here. Aha. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, tell me, have you had a lot of experience with people with out-of-body experiences? Yeah. Well, out-of-body experiences to me, I'm a very simplistic person in lots of ways. The the reason I'm simplistic, I think, is because I'm working with real patients with real illnesses who are sitting there. So you can't get too theoretical in those kind of situations. If somebody says that, if somebody says that they're out of their body, you can see it as a physician working with them. They look they don't look right, they feel alienated, their body doesn't feel right. And you can I mean that's what you can grab them and put them back in. You can have them hug trees and pull themselves back in. But it in this day and age in America especially where people are um doing guided, very powerful guided imagery and traveling with um, sometimes not a lot of training. Um, they get stuck out, especially, uh, and this just happens. So it's kind of normal. It's, it's not, and it's not real, I don't, I don't consider it real important. Uh, what's interesting about the story to me is that um, it's um, an admission for people to deal with this sort of thing in a normal way. It's not something strange or, or unusual or something. And again, it goes right back to your first question. If you're going to wait for the research on whether or not it's real, what do you do when that person comes to you and says, put me back? I'm going to say, no, I'm going to do a research study. No. <laughs> no I'm going to put you back in 20 years when it's proven that this therapy works. No. So this work coming out of uh, conventional medicine and immunology, up through the Hopi Reservation, up through a holistic clinic in Bolinas, up through this work in the healing arts, has led you in recent years into an extraordinary piece of work uh, on Demeter, Buddha, and the bears, and uh, the ancient roots of contemporary spiritual healing. And uh, uh, I'm particularly interested in your starting point, the uh, Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, the cult of Demeter and Persephone. Um, it's a cult that started uh, 1,500 years before Christ. It uh, went on for 2,000 years. You also have a home in Greece now. Tell us about your immersion in the Eleusinian. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, well, I don't know. Eleusinian. Eleusinian. Not Eleusinian. Eleusinian, okay. I think. Uh, let's, let's go through a bunch of slides and skip a lot of stuff and go to Eleusinian Mysteries. We'll start with this uh, group. Okay. The Eleusinian Mysteries for me is the seminal piece of healing art ever done. Uh, it was done for 2,000 successive years, only stopped once for the Persian Wars. And what it was, was the major Western culture on earth, intellectual, scientific, rational, and spiritual, uh, producing a, an intentional consciousness transforming ritual that was art, music, and dance, done largely by women to change the consciousness of the whole culture. We'll talk about that, we'll talk about Buddha bodies, and we'll talk about the bear dance. Uh, let's go uh, to the first slides, the Aleutian Mysteries. Okay, back one. Now we're there. Okay. Um, this is, these are slides of Aleutius, which is a, in a suburb. It's in a town, Elefsina, outside of Athens, and which is now um, totally polluted oil refinery town. 
It's one of the worst places in Greece, which is also really interesting in terms of the mother, because Demeter is the mother. And um, this is uh, beautiful indeed is the mystery given to us by the blessed gods. Death is for mortals no longer an evil, but a blessing. The likelihood was that the Aleutian mysteries were a way to take people in a nine-day lived experience and have them experience darkness and death and rebirth. And Aristotle did it, uh, Plato did it, uh, the, the Roman kings did it, almost every, soccer, almost every major figure. And it was also done by slaves. It was open to men and women and everyone of the culture, regardless of rank. And, um, okay, the story is that most many of you may know is that the goddess of agriculture, the goddess of the earth, Demeter, uh, her daughter, who was a teenager, uh, was, was gathering flowers and kidnapped by Hades, the god of death and the underworld, and taken to the underworld kingdom. Okay, Demeter searched for her daughter um, and went to, uh, in the search, went to Eleusis. And uh, there's a well in Eleusis where she sat. And at that well, she cried, was adopted by a local family, raised one of the sons of a woman and tried to turn him into a god, and then basically uh, gave up. She asked for a, um, she found out that her daughter had been kidnapped by permission by her husband, taken to the underworld. And then the, the legend that everyone knows where she came out, ate the pomegranate seeds, uh, and that made her have to go back in the winter for three months. So it's, and, and the coarsest, most simplistic way of looking at it is it was a, a seasonal ritual. Uh, and it was done for, not, it was a double ceremony done for nine days in the month of September. Um, the people did a procession from Athens to Eleusis, which was about 14 kilometers. And that'd be purification, rest, and a fasting. Um, and then um, for 2,000 years, and thousands of people a year did this, it's never been revealed what happened. This is extraordinary. The fact that you had a, a huge consciousness transforming ritual that was at the spiritual heart of a whole culture that was repeated, and it was never revealed. When, when Aristophanes wrote about it in a play, they actually tried him to put him to death, and he took the lines out. But I don't personally think that the threat of death was the reason it was never revealed. Um, in, in the site, which I'll show you pictures of, um, there was, the people marched, when they marched, uh, there were people, uh, drummers, women frame drummers, and they drummed the whole 14 miles and put everybody in a trance. And they were beaten with um, uh, olive branches or twigs and told even the richest and most powerful and philosophers of the society were essentially reduced to a, a level of, of uh, non-hierarchical structure. Uh, they were brought to this big temple and then they were probably put in the dark. Uh, no one really knows what happens, but I, the theories, the research that I did uh, that's the well where, where Demeter sat. Um, this, is the, this was a huge cave. And I think what happened was, is the people were, uh, with drumming and with trance, put in the dark, and then somehow they were forced to face the darknesses of their own life. And in this culture, it might have dealt a lot with death and with fear of death. And then... That's the, that's the cave they went in with. The whole roof has fallen. It was actually very, very large. 
Uh, then they went to this football-sized arena. And probably what happened there, uh, they, they went inside a room. There was continued drumming. They were given something that was revealed to them that we still don't know, have any idea what it was, three objects. They were told the truth, and then a huge fire erupted that was seen for like 13 miles. It was seen all over Athens. And then the people came out. And when they came out, whatever happened to them there changed. They all said that their lives were changed forever by that experience. And they were called initiates, and they could come back in another year. So for me, the idea that this, the core of, a major, of the major culture of the world was to change the consciousness of its key leaders, political, spiritual, social, and philosophical, by an art, music, and dance performance that took them in the underworld to darkness and then revealed something to them, I think, in a visionary state, due to the music, is extraordinary. And it's, this uh, went on for 2,000 years. Just interesting, as long as Christianity has gone. It went on. It, the 2,000 years are really interesting to me and strange because Greek culture changed enormously and, in fact, went Roman. And it was only stopped by Christianity. So that it, this thing survived the religious, cultural, and spiritual transformation of an entire culture. I remember so, uh, Plato, Plato speaks of this as, as a mystery that brings us back to uh, the true uh, experience of the spiritual good from which we have descended. Uh, and then later, uh, uh, Cicero in The Laws uh, speaks of this as the greatest institutional contribution of Athens. So uh, this was, as you said, a powerful thing from Plato to Cicero and beyond. Marcus Aurelius rebuilt the temple after it was destroyed. So it was a very powerful, sustained, central institutional cult. And it definitely, there's no question, what's, what there's no question about is it was drumming, it was song, it was dance. It was a passion play, it went in the darkness, it faced death, it dealt with rebirth, and it probably, I think, had individual visions. I think what, if, and then what, what I, I live in Greece now, and you live inside this thing. You go to an archaeological site, and you can touch it. You can go to the well where Demeter sat looking for her daughter. And you know, the theories of Rupert Sheldrake about resonances. You can feel the prayers. You can feel 2,000 years of transformative experience when even at this destroyed site, with oil, I mean, literally, behind the wall of this site is an oil refinery spewing out uh, massive pollution. It's not attractive. I mean, there are other sites in Greece, Delphi or something that are gorgeous. This is not it. But you can feel what happened there. And it's an in I think what it is to me, in terms of healing, is it's an invitation for us to create something like this in our culture. Whether it's limited, whether it's personal. And I mean, obviously, our, Athens, if you look at pictures of Athens, uh, even 200 years ago, it was a small town. It was like smaller than San Rafael. So this is not, uh, even though Athens sounds really big to us, this was a small population. But you had 1,000 people, 500 to 1,000 people a year is what I heard, who did the Aleutian Mysteries, walked in a line 14 kilometers long, two frame drummers with their heads down the first day, gave sacrifice, bathed in purification baths the second day, went in the darkness, blah, 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 this whole structure of this secret ritual. So what do we have in our culture for spiritual healing? And but this is, it's almost, for me, the craziness about the Aleutian Mysteries is twofold. One is that it's, 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 um, it doesn't use the word healing ever, and it doesn't use the word art ever, okay? It's, it's, it's consciousness transformative through ceremony and ritual. 
So, but it does use, its vehicle is definitely the frame drum and music and dance. So that I have this theory, uh, a lot of people have this theory right now, that if we produce a frame drumming ritual with song and dance on these sites, there are people that can remember by feeling the resonances of this. So we had kind of a plan for a while to do this with Lane Redmond, who's a frame drummer that some of you know, to, to go into a cave somewhere in Greece. Delph, there's a huge cave above Delphi in Greece, which is an incredible ceremonial cave. It's in the mountains, Parnassus, a couple of hours out. Michael, I don't know if you know the work of Peter Kingsley, who's a dissident, a dissident uh, student of Greek culture and uh, early uh, healing mysteries. But he did a, a New School conversation with us. And he, uh, he speaks of the Escalapian healing temples and the whole tradition uh, of, uh, of uh, incubation. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is the relationship between uh, these uh, mysteries, the, the Aleutian mysteries, and the Escalapian healing temples and their traditions of incubation, which were very similar. I visited some of those temples in Turkey. And again, what you had was that people came there, they were, uh, they were told to wait in darkness until they dreamt that which would heal them. So how did the, how did the Apollonian healing temples relate to the Aleutian mystery? Well, to me, the, to me, the Greek healing system is the model of the healing system that we should have today. They first, uh, first of all, the sites were extraordinarily beautiful. They were on tops of mountains. They had springs. They had sacred springs, sacred water. And then the people were brought there. It was a pilgrimage to get to the healing site. And any pilgrimage, especially one that's difficult, is transformative. And then they were, uh, they had a dream night, but the dream was invoking intentionally with commitment the healing spirits and the healing gods, which were often serpents. There's incredible pictures of the serpent coming to them in the healing sleep and biting them. And then, then the next day, like at Delft, there was an oracle. And the oracle was a woman, and she was completely in a trance. And the trance was so deep that in Delph now, Delphi, uh, th there's like incredible theories of what the trance was. One, it was LSD caused by chewing some root that grew nearby. One, it was an earthquake fault, and there was a propane-like gas that came out. Because no one can, can understand in our culture that women can go into trances and heal without all this stuff. Okay? So this was, and then she would interpret the dream, and that would be the healing. So it's a, a healing that involved a pilgrimage, a purification, sacred water, a spring, a sacred site, an incredibly beautiful place. And there was allopathic medicine there. There was herbs, and there was... Uh, even, I think, surgery. But the key, the key to it was a spiritual, visionary, transformative experience, experienced by the person in a sacred place of, of tremendous beauty. So that's a model that I think it wasn't a hospital that was ugly and frightening. It wasn't um, demeaning and uh, et cetera and so forth. So, but the link to Lucius, Lucius made something far grander. Because Lucius is the, the, tra the spiritual consciousness transformation of the entire culture. Uh, and healing in a way, for me right now, and when I work with a cancer patient or work with someone, it's not about white blood cells eating cancer cells anymore. It's about a consciousness transformation 
that's experienced in visionary space that enables them really to see their guide spirits and who they are. And that that's what Alicia's was, I think. And it needs to face death and it needs to go in the darkness. We'll be right back after a short break. In, in your sense, healing was a subset of cultural consciousness transformation. Yeah, and this was the, the big Aleutian one. The mysteries were greater yeah. than the Apollonian healing yeah. temples because yeah. they were dealing with the whole culture, yeah. not simply the uh, And it's much more complicated than that, too, because the Delphi, the oracle that Delphi became used for the wars, for the generals to decide what place to invade. And she was taken over and with a overturning of the matriarchy and the formation of the patriarchy. So this was part of a huge culture. It was much more complicated than this. But this, the Aleutian Mysteries, um, I think, was the overviewing thing. And in our culture, when you look at healing, I think we need an overviewing thing too. Especially in this culture, uh, where someone goes into a hospital or someone has a homeopath or someone has a guided imagery healer. There, there needs to be a I think, an underlining visionary transformative experience that's different than that. And a Native American healing, which is the third thing. I'm, and, and what this is for me is I'm a, I'm a physician who works with patients to uh, ha- encourage a spiritual transformative process. So I'm looking for, because right now you say healing is to heal the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. That's a... There's a, you know, listen to the radio when you turn on Pacific Medical Center says, we heal the whole patient, body, mind, and spirit. Great. Okay, terrific. So you heal body with drugs and surgery. You heal mind with attitude, relaxation, mind, drugs, whatever. How do you heal spirit? That's, this is the challenge that we have right now. No one is denying in modern medicine that you have to heal spirit. The future, the whole future... I mean, we, we skipped over a bunch of slides of Lee Kaiser, who's a health futurist from the University of Colorado. The whole future of healing is to try to merge the allopathic system with the healing of spirit. And what's the technology for it? So I'm examining three technologies, essentially. Ancient 2,000-year-old technologies that did it really well. And saying, what can we learn from these technologies to apply today? Lucian Mysteries is a little challenging, 2,000 successive years of taking the greatest philosophers, political leaders, the king, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, can you imagine George Bush going for nine days and being beat, bitten, beaten by olive branches? It's a good idea. And people saying, you're, you're just nothing. I mean, where they went under one bridge and they had a little thing attached to them where everyone said, you're nothing. You're nothing. You get, you're the least of the worms. And this was Marcus Aurelius who paid for the whole thing. He built this temple, you know? So it's pretty interesting. So you mentioned that, that your conception is that for us to create a modern scientific healing technology, that these three uh, perspectives, the Aleutian Mysteries, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, technology of uh, imagery, and the Chumash bear dances, are the three things that have sort of brought you in that direction. Which would you like to take next? Uh, I'll just do the, the Buddhist. Okay, what, a, what about the Buddhist? Okay, uh, this is very technical stuff. And for those of you involved in Buddhism, it's not the Buddhist view of healing. It's a subset of the Buddhist view of art and healing. 
because the Buddhists were really, 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 the, they were, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, not the Thai uh, breathing tradition, uh, was the high technology of guided imagery. As a guided imagery therapist, these people had the monks melting, taking, sitting in the ice cold with blankets of ice put on them, and they could raise their core temperature supposedly up enough to melt the ice. So, okay, but this, I'll take you through this high technology of Buddhist healing art, and hold on and try to go there. The, it's, okay, you've got three bodies of Buddha. The truth body, experience of wisdom, the beatific body, the experience of bliss, and the emanation body, which is bliss and wisdom, communicated to others. So communication, okay? Okay. The emanation body, here we go. It's like the atom and the quarks and everything, is divided into three bodies. The supreme emanation body of Buddha to help others, the incarnational emanation body of teachers to help others, and dun, 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 the artistic emanation body made up of anything that represents enlightenment. Okay? Okay, the artistic emanation body is made of all of the sacred art and artists who create it. Literature, visual arts, and sculpture that represented the sacred life of Buddha are crucial in helping people attain liberation. Um, Art is crucial to the structure of healing Buddhism. Okay? It's, it's the way a person can see, hear, listen, and understand the reality of enlightenment. Art is the way wisdom and bliss are communicated to others. Okay, your, pers your life is healing art. Who you are is what you get. Okay, your artistic emanation body is your most powerful art form. Okay? Uh, for your life to be healing art, you live with the intent to heal in every breath. Okay, let's stop there for okay. a moment. Just that thought. For your life to heal, you must live with healing intention with every breath. It's an extraordinary statement. It's an extraordinary statement. And, and when you... The, in, in healing art, there's two subsets of healing art. One is the blank screen, where the person is, goes into the deepest spiritual state that they can be put in and then has an image of healing come to them, okay? And that image can be invited, like if you're inviting a, a white blood cell eating a cancer cell to come to you, and you can copy it from a movie you see of a white blood cell eating a cancer cell. And then the next step of the wolf eating the shadow comes from where, okay? It comes from where? It's an invited. The, t the Tibetan Buddhists did it another way, is they had this which was memorized and, and visualized perfectly with every color and every cloud. And this was truth and enlightenment of the greatest people of that culture spiritually. And when it was painted, what happened was that those figures came to the room and healed the people in the room and healed the artist and everything merged and exploded in a flash. So what art was for Buddhism was the vision of the Buddha, who was the highest figure in this thing, transmitted visually, verbally, architecturally, music and dance to you so that you could have it as a lived experience and explode. It was the way you were dragged into Buddha consciousness. Now the image okay. you're showing us is an image of the Buddha in, in being embraced by his consort. Yeah, a, he yeah, is yeah. red, she is white. It's a very beautiful image. It's obviously a, 
erotic image uh, as well as a, a sacred image. What does it say to you that uh, in Tibetan Buddhism you have uh, this uh, a marriage, really, of uh, the erotic and the sacred as a healing art? It's the, well, all of them are different. This is, this is just one of them. You, you, whatever you had, you used for the specific purpose. If you needed a union of opposites, if you needed a difference in colors, if you needed a, an aura and the light, these were all ways that, um, but they were, the energy was real. The peace actually produced the transformation. Those figures became alive in the room. It's, it's in no way parallel to a piece of art in our culture. It's art in our culture. It's decorative. It's for show. It's for sale. It's not transformative. And even if it's transformative, it doesn't bring a spirit and God into the room. This is another whole technology. And this is um, music, songs, and poems, a direct path to the imagination to picture enlightenment directly. Harmony brings you to enlightenment directly. Architecture it brings you to the center of sacred space directly. Sculpture is the way to embody yourself as a god. As you picture the icon, the mental image is energized until you merge and become one. The Tibetan Buddhist first pictures the deity and then it merges with it. Buddhists visualize themselves being made anew, born as the deity, and it takes the utmost discipline and practice to manifest. See, this is not the Yab Yum. This is the Green Tara. This is another one, another space. So, in closing of this, art is a direct flowing from the enlightened space of Buddha, which gives you the way to be embodied as enlightenment. And in this framework, that's how healing occurs. As you're enlightened, you're healed, and you're enlightened by the making of this art in front of you, with you, as a discipline. So this is a second ancient teaching. This is a teaching of guided imagery where the people could picture in their mind's eye the Buddha perfectly with their ancestors a thousand generations. They were trained to do that. When those people who could do that sat with you, the Buddha came into the room, you grokked that space, you merged with that space, it, you caught fire, and that was the way of the healing. So this is a different, a radically different model from the thing we were talking about before. It's not uh, drumming to bring in a chance to bring in visions. It's another, it's another view. I worked with a, a New Zealand sculptor who made the piece of sculpture for the center of the village. And, and it was ancient Maori. And he sa I said to him, do they need to know the story of the Maori god to be healed? He said, absolutely not. The energy is there. There's no story, no words. No story, no words. So here you've got an, a technology of healing that involves, but again, if you think about this technology of healing and merge it with the one that we had before, the demand on us as people trying to spiritually heal is have ourselves be the emanation of Buddha in our artistic life. Have the space we work in architecturally sacred space. Have it be music, have it be flowing, have it be beauty. Somehow we have to manifest these healing spirits and gods all around for the people to heal. And that, in a way, is the same thing. If you're looking for, if phenomenologically, examining the, the, what is the same in these three stories, uh, Aleutius, Demeter, Buddha, and the bears, it's the 
use of an art, creative, music, dance, uh, meditative technology to bring spirit in and the person merging with spirit or something like it. That's the, that's the phenomenological impression here. I've got a lot of questions, but before I ask them, let's go on to the Chumash bear dance. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm a bear dancer with the Chumash Nation in uh, Southern California. And the bear dance is very, very, very ancient. There are caves in southern France with bear skulls from 35,000 years ago. Um, um, in the, the dance that we do, we do it three times a year to put the bear to sleep, to wake the bear up, and for healing. And the story of, that, of, the, of all of the coastal Indians in California, and we live here, folks. This is our place. Miwok, Pomo, uh, Chumash, these are the Indians from the northern part of California to Los Angeles. These are our, the Sheldrakean vibrations that we live inside of. And they believe that illness, mental, physical, uh, and life growth, uh, went from them when they're standing there in a bear dance to the bear. The bear is a bear dancer who's a, a trained bear cult figure who's uh, wearing shorts and a bear skin, who's going around a fire. That person growls and scratches and becomes a bear for six hours. And there's 16 songs, four for east, four for south, four for west, four for north, special songs in a certain order that bring the bear spirits into the bears that are dancing around the fire. And those songs are thousands of years old in Shumash. And the people around the fire let go of their illness. It flies through space to the bear and lands on the bear. And then there are men dressed as carrying eagle wings. And they swoop the illness from the bear into the fire. And then that goes up to Creator. And they let go of illness, mental and physical. They release what needs to be released and they send a prayer to heaven. So... Okay, there's tons and tons and tons of ancient images um, of the bear dance and of bear healing. The bear is, a, a lot of animals change form and change meaning, but the bear is healing and the bear is in the West. Okay, multiple cultures. But for me, what I learned from the bear dance, the third one of this thing, first that the basic human way of looking at healing in all cultures except ours is that healing is spiritual, that we're basically... Uh, spirit figures that have a body or something like that. Uh, 99, every culture in the Ford file at Yale believes in spiritual healing instead of physical healing. Okay. Um, second, there has to be a technology, a way to uh, bring that spirit that does the healing. So the way they do it is to dance the animal. And this is a fully um, committed art healing ritual. It's, you've got music, which is the, so, the 16 songs, and a drum. You have the skin, which is the costume. You've got all of this visual stuff and music stuff and dance stuff. So, so somehow, and for some reason, which is the crucial question, why does dance, music, art, and visual arts bring spirit? And that brings the spirit in. And then the story, the illness goes to spirit. The people believe completely in this. The tribal people hold this vision. And that's the healing. So I'm with a group of people who have essentially an 80,000-year-old belief system that spirit heals, that an animal spirit heals them, and that this is the way it works. And there's no word spoken. Nothing is said. When I go to a bear dance, n this is not explained to anyone. It just is. It's just there. So that's the, that's the third form. So now we have this kind of 
as a group of people sitting here together, we have some data. How can, if you want to heal spirit in a hospital, if you want to heal spirit with a patient that, that you're with, not mind, but spirit, what, what's the technology, the messages we have from three ancient cultures to do it? So, Michael, what is your direct personal experience of the reality of uh, spirit healing? In other words, the way you talk about it, it is more than... Um, it is more than a anthropological description. It feels like a felt experience of your own. So can you give us an example uh, of an experience that you've had where this was powerfully present in your own life? What do you mean my own life, Michael? Well, an example of whether you were with a patient or in your own healing process where you really felt the presence of healing spirit. In my own life, I, I, I live, this is what I live, basically. And it manifests a lot of ways. One way it manifests is whenever I'm with a patient, there's a bear there. And it's very large, it's behind me, I can feel its hand. It's 15 years ago, before I knew anything about the bear dance. I mean, I, I'm the only bear dancer in this group that's not Native American, that's not in the bear clan, that's not initiated. I was given a bear in a whole different story. I saw my bear and I started dancing with cancer patient children with leukemia and breast cancer women in a bear skin five years before I knew these guys were dancing. So I just, if you asked me 10 years ago, what happens when I'm with a patient, I would have said there's a big bear. I have no idea what that means or who I am or why. All the rest of the bear dancers have the identical story. They dream of bears. They, they dream of bear healing. There's something in our spiritual DNA as, as Lee Kaiser calls it. He, Lee Kaiser is a health futurist from the University of Colorado. Do you know him, Michael? I don't know. Him? He's a spectacular man. His website's amazing. Um, I think he's the most powerful health futurist. And he basically says that the two most futuristic things in healing uh, are shamanism and art. And that the AGS, or AGS, has had to merge them into a for-profit, money-making healing system in a good way. But this isn't... It's not easy, but it's natural because when you bring shamanism and art into a hospital, people have a good time. It's like Greece. You know, there's a famous quote in Art and Healing from Children's Hospital San Diego. Uh, the CEO asked the children when they leave, did you have a good time? They're leaving the hospital. These are very sick children. And the first question on the interview is, did you have a good time? And it's not an irrelevant question. Because for us, healing is a growth experience and a transformative experience. And it also has to be, in a sense, not enjoyable. I mean, that's, in a way, funny for adults. Did you have a good time? But if somebody asks you, last time you went to a hospital, did you have a good time? Okay. When you went to a spa, did you have a good time? When you went to a transformative weekend at Esalon or something, or at Commonweal, did you have a good time? Because that's the healing. And the two have to merge and become one in a Greek way for us, for us to get there. So in my own life, I had cancer, a uh, diagnosis of cancer given to me, kind of. It was, I hadn't had the biopsy, but three of the doctors said I had uh, a tumor, and one of them said it was metastatic. And what it, for a month, I carved a bear out of marble. That was what I did. But before my operation, I went to East Bay, I got a piece of marble, and I, why was I doing it? Because I was trying to manifest the bear spirit to take care of me. 
uh, and, and I did. I, it's on the front of my house, and I, and I saw the bear spirit and brought that bear spirit to me, and that was the best I could do in this situation. I didn't go down to the bear dance. When I'm at the bear dance, we bring, there's four rounds, and the second, four dances in each round of 16 dances. So the first dance, the bears go around in a circle, and there's seven to 20 bears. These are adult males. It's rather, pretty sexist, wearing grizzly bear skins, and from midnight to six in the morning, going around a circle. The second dance, they bring in patients in wheelchairs, on stretchers, or, or carry them in, or sit them down. And the bears, like, maul them. They go all around them, and they scratch. And the illness comes out of the people. You can feel the illness. You can see it. goes into the bear and goes into the fire. And you can, in a, in a Native American sense, you can see the spirit of the illness. You can see the darkness. You can, just like you see, how do you put people back in their body? You can see it. And, that's, and the people can see it. Everybody can see it. And that's kind of what's happening. So it's, uh, but there's a, and also in answer to your question, there's a powerful shift that has to occur in me, driving a car down Highway 5 from my ordinary life and entering the space where bear spirits are real. That, it's a huge shift. When I go in that ring and I'm growling, I can't be faking it. You know, Michael, you're, you're, you mentioned that you're working on a book on uh, spirituality and animals. And on several occasions, uh, you've, you've mentioned Rupert Sheldrake. And for those of you who don't know Rupert Sheldrake's work, he's a very extraordinary man who, as Michael mentioned, but it was an illusion, uh, allusion, uh, uh, developed the idea of morphic fields of resonance that different uh, cultures, different animals, it's a quite platonic theory, have a, a morphic field and that the laws of the universe are not immutable laws but more like habits that are created around these different morphic fields of resonance. Um, and now you talked about um, the sort of nonverbal aspects of healing. Um, uh, Sheldrake, you may know, has an extraordinary book called Dogs Who Know When Their Masters Are Coming Home. And he did a whole series, it's an ongoing series, of studies with animals and uh, telepathic communication between humans and animals. And he also talks about the role of animals in healing. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it seems to me, and Sheldrake points to this, that there are, as you know, there's an extraordinary amount of work by Dean Radin and Marilyn Schlitz at the Institute of Noetic Sciences on psi phenomena, on telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and um, a, a clairaudience and psychokinesis. But Sheldrick points out that the field of psi phenomena and, uh, and uh, these extra cognitive capacities never made contact with the field of animal research, but yet, in fact, Animal research and psi are, is a fabulous area uh, to study but precisely because the animals are working in a nonverbal format and because there's so much evidence both of psi communication among animals and between animals and human beings. So I wanted to ask you, since you're working on a book on animals and spirituality, uh, is that book largely about the sort of bear dance type phenomena of the role of animals in spirituality? Or are you thinking also of the sort of multiple conjunctions that Sheldrake is exploring when he talks about... Uh, well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, basically, I'm just fascinated by the fact that 
you go into Camberell's cave in France, and there are, I don't know, 2,000 animals painted on the walls right. from 30,000 B.C., nothing else. Right. There's no trees. There's no people. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, some of the animals are woolly mammoths yeah. and saber-toothed tigers. The, the eyes of these people who lived with these animals. And a lot of the drawings are shamanic. And um, the whole basis of the bear dance really is the dreams the bear dancers have before they're given the skin, which is a psychic connection between a bear spirit living on the land and and the people. So it's it's interwoven. You can't separate it. I think that, again, this is a mystery. It's With me, I'm, I'm very upset about the disrespect that we have for animals in, in our world, you know. It, it's... Um, and if I'm, one of the things I realized right away is if I'm a bear dancer, you have to work to protect bears and bear habitats. And there are 4,500 bears in the state of Florida. A lot of them live near Disney World. And the largest cause of death of bears in Florida is killed by cars. And so you kind of know these things if you're working with bears, because I go out in the country to where bears live and hang out with them and just be around I'd go out for the night and spend, live on the bare land and you just kind of feel them or something like that. So you're in communication with them. It's a sign. The bears, the masters who know, the, the animals who know that their master comes home. That's what the whole thing is. In, in the Aleutian mysteries, um, in the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and in the bear dances, in each situation there was a powerful cultural consensus about the reality of uh, the healing imagery of the, uh, uh, that was involved. Now we live in a culture that's not only materialist in its base, but to the extent that people have uh, healing imagery of any kind, it's extraordinarily eclectic. So in your vision, what is the right approach to spiritual healing in a materialist time where spiritual imagery is profoundly eclectic. How do we do it? That's the question. Right. That's, What's that's, your approach? That's exactly the question. Yeah. Because I think we have to do it. There's a, a good study by, a relatively good study by Koenig, who's a physician in Duke, that shows that people 60 years old to 80 years old in an old age home who do any spiritual work at all, meditation, prayer, going to church, uh, have a 40% greater chance of survival in five years than the ones who don't, which is the same as wearing seat belts and stopping smoking. So basically, for a healthcare provider in this culture, if you don't heal with spirit, you're not putting seat belt on a patient or stopping him from smoking. It's crazy. So you have to do it. So now we're in a situation where almost medical legally, n not far away from that, this has to be part of healing at any hospital. And what do you do? That's where we are in 2008. So what do you do at Commonweal? What does Rachel do? What is, you write poetry, you deal with the darkness, you find out who your authentic self is, you go into imagery space. What, what do I do with my patients? I try to get them to have peak spiritual experiences in imagery space by making art. Okay? That's, the, that's not so difficult. You, uh, you create ceremony, you create ritual. What's the ceremony and ritual in a person's life? I teach art and healing at... I used to teach at San Francisco State 
Next year, I think I'm probably going to do it at JFK. And the students are given a one-month project. They have to use art, music, dance, visual arts, and poetry to heal themselves, others, and the earth, and they have to do it for real. No theorization. I don't want a paper on what art and healing is. I don't want to, there's no test questions. Okay? So what they do, they look at their life. What needs to be healed? Okay? And one woman says, in the death of my mother, I never grieved for or saw her go. So I'm going to make a memorial service to deal with the death of my mother. I'm going to use my two, I'm going to have my two children join. So she makes a, a medicine wheel, a mandala on the beach in Malibu in the place where her mother dies. And she gets costumes for her children and they play music and they do this thing. And that's the healing. So that's, she did a healing ceremony ritual using music, art, and dance to go into spirits. Did she talk to the spirit of her mother during the ritual? I didn't ask her. So that's the best I can do right now. Is in hospitals, it's very easy to do. You, you, um, that's why we've stuck with arts and medicine programs. Because you, know, in a, you have a child with leukemia. He's um, in a room with the shades drawn. It's dark. He's from southern Georgia. He's never been in a building more than two stories high from a farm. Uh, they're suddenly doing this and doing that. His mother's sitting at the window and crying, and he's mute and refusing to talk to people. The dancer comes in the room, and she says, do you want to dance? They kick her out. She comes in the room the next day, throws a paper airplane. The child follows it with the eyes. And then he makes a movement. And then he decides he wants to be a dinosaur, and they make a dinosaur costume. And then he makes buildings, of tall buildings, and knocks them down. And then he has his mother get dressed. And then the, this is a week. And then the shades go up. And then the light comes in. And now he's talking. He's sitting there at the window waiting for that um, doctor, waiting for anybody to come, waiting for the artist to come. The pain drugs drop. The use of side effects of the chemotherapy and radiation drop. And who knows what else. So that's real simple and real inexpensive. Michael Samuels, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.